God is good. Amen? He is really good. And that is both um, unbelievable, joy-filled news, and yet that is some of the scariest news on the planet, that our God and His character, that He is good, and that He is holy, and that He is, yes, love, but He is equally, that He is just-filled. And this is who He is, and that our very desire in nature as believers should be to want to know this God for who he declares that he is. And for a long time, in and out of the history of Christianity, we can easily create a false God and claim it to be a Christian one. One of the heartbeats of the DNA of Mission Church is to course correct is to redirect us and to rethink God from a very biblical standpoint and fall in love with the God of the Scripture that is often dampened and lessened in our culture and and their broadcasting of who this God is. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, today I'm going to share a very simple thing, and yet it is the most complex thing of all of our faith. My prayer has been uh, early this morning as we have gathered, um, most of it in tears, that the Lord would speak to us in a very passionate and real way this morning. And so I encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We have been going through Matthew now for about a year and a half. Welcome. You can just take an on-ramp and you'll be right with us, okay? Matthew chapter 27, as we last... Left, uh, we saw in the very end of chapter 26 that Peter has now betrayed Jesus. And the morning came, and all the chief priests and the elders of the people, uh, they, they took counsel against Jesus because the, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders all want Jesus dead. They want him dead, they want their power back. They want the money back in their pocketbooks. They want their popularity back. They want people to come and to follow after them because they have been following after Jesus and they are losing control. And so within Judaism, they have sentenced Jesus to death. And yet because Jerusalem and, the, and, and Israel and all of Israel is, is controlled by the Romans, they simply just can't go out back and kill someone. In order to execute capital punishment, they must also have the authority and given permission by the Romans themselves. And so as the Bible tells us in verse 2 of chapter 27, and they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. This is all taking place on Passover. This is probably Friday morning. The the dawn has just come, and now they're leading Jesus to this mockery of a trial, both in Judaism and in a Roman system of government. The Bible tells us here in verses 3 through 10 that Judas now goes and hangs himself. He is remorseful. He feels guilty for what he has done. He returns to the chief priests and the scribes and he has this bag of 30 pieces of silver which is equivalent of what you would pay for a slave. And and you get this picture that he's trying to return it. He never probably wanted Jesus to necessarily be crucified. He just wanted Jesus to be taken care of. And ultimately, Judas wanted some money. 
But once the gavel from the Jews has come down and he is declared to be crucified, Judas begins to feel guilty. I mean, he has lived with Jesus for the last three years. He has been fed by Jesus. He has been taught by Jesus. His very life has been saved in a storm. By who? By this Jesus. And yet, he is remorseful. He tries to return the funds and maybe in hopes of getting Jesus out of trouble, but it is simply just uh, Judas has become a pawn for their ultimate goal. Judas, overcome with the grief of his sin, is genuinely remorseful. I believe that Judas does feel bad, that he has taken his own life. And yet... There's a great difference, as we talked about last week, between remorse for sin and true biblical repentance. There are lots of people who don't have a relationship with Jesus who can feel guilty about doing this or doing that. And is that a part of repentance? Yes, but many people step into remorse, they step into guilt, and yet it leads to no change. If you have a parent in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. As your child can be conditioned in messing up to immediately say, I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry, Daddy. In what? In hopes of getting immediate grace. Yet at our house, we keep it real. We got a black belt in it. We tell Ava all the time, remorse is good but repentance means change so don't just tell me you're sorry daddy don't just tell me you're sorry mommy you show me that you're sorry repentance is remorseful yes but it is pressing into Jesus it is clinging to the person and work of Jesus it is placing one's faith and trust and hope not in their sin not in themselves but in the person and work of Jesus Judas feels remorse but he does not turn to Jesus he is guilty yet he does not turn to Jesus the Bible tells us of this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Unable to repent, he hangs himself. The elders then take the money and buy a field, and they decide that they will bury strangers in that field because it is considered to be blood money, and they can't just throw it back into the offering plate and use it for the temple. And what does the Bible once again tells us? It tells us that this was to fulfill the Scripture. Again, Matthew over and over and over again is trying to show his readers and ultimately trying to show us that Jesus is the promised Messiah that was foretold hundreds if not thousands of years ago that it was all pointing towards Jesus, even the purchasing of this field. It's Jeremiah chapter 19 and Zechariah chapter 11, again proving who Jesus was. John's story of this tells us that Jesus says this in John chapter 17, while I was with them, speaking of the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
So we hear and we see of this, this great remorse and yet lack of repentance from Judas to the point of, of grief and oppression and depression to the point that he would take his own life. The Bible even gives this picture later on that, that literally he probably hung there until he became bloated, rotted, fell from the ground on a pile of rocks and literally his innards spilled out all over the ground. From there, the Bible takes us. Now Peter is, or excuse me, now Jesus has made it before Pilate. And Pilate is, is the, the Roman governor. He has been sent there to kind of oversee the proceedings of Passover. Again, this is a, a city of probably less than 100,000 that now is, is booming. There are guesstimations of upward of several million folk, uh, Jewish people, have ascended upon Jerusalem to celebrate the most holy week in all of their beliefs system, the Passover. In order to keep an angry mob or to keep hostile takeover from happening from these Jews, the Romans send just legions of, of Roman guards to the holy city to keep watch over and make sure that everything is staying calm. And the head over that was a man named Pontius Pilate. They were a nation within a nation. That means that the Jews, again, under the authority of the Romans, must get permission. They're making sure that no one is attacking the holy city. And as I've mentioned, they can punish their own folk up until a point, but they cannot do capital punishment without first Pontius Pilate saying that this is okay. So the chief priests, they take Jesus to stand before this Roman governor, this pagan worshiper, this worshiper of many gods, this man named Pontius Pilate. And, and Pilate is concerned, or excuse me, Pilate is not concerned as the Jewish people are that Jesus is blaspheming their God by declaring to be God. Remember, that's the, the underlying element for the Jewish um, chief priests and the elders is that Jesus is committing blasphemy. He's declaring to be God. He's declaring to be one with God, to have the power of God. And yet coming to a Roman figurehead like Pontius Pilate, that will do them no good. However, if these chief and high priests, if they can come to Pontius Pilate and convince him that this messianic king, this guy who's professing to be king of the Jews, is really a threat against the Roman Empire, then that would force Pontius Pilate's hand to have to do something about this guy from Nazareth. It would take direct opposition against Caesar, which would be, again, treason. It would be insurrection. It would be make Jesus a terrorist who would be coming against these people. Pilate asked Jesus the question, right? He's standing before Jesus. Jesus has already been beat just a little bit by the, by the Jewish people. The Bible tells us that they have now struck him. So Jesus is standing in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate asked him the question, Are you the king of the Jews? What's interesting is that John gives us a little bit more dialogue that's taking place in this conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And the people are crying out, crucify him, crucify him, you know, crucify him, crucify him. And, and, and they're saying all kinds of things against Jesus. And yet Jesus 
primarily remain silent to them, but will every so often speak to Pilate. Everyone who is in the truth listens to my voice, Jesus would say. He would say things like, after Pilate would speak, it is, you say it is, which is a, a Greek way of saying, yes, it is true. Pilate begins to make quick judgment of Jesus in this passage, doesn't he? It, it tells us that, that Pilate kind of looks at Jesus' appearance and his attitude, his, his calm approach. He concludes that Jesus is not a threat to Rome. And yet they continue to slaughter Jesus. They continue to slaughter Jesus' character and his mission. And yet, as, as the prophet Isaiah would say in chapter 53, verse 7, verse 7, that Jesus remains silent. And Pilate is, again, he is amazed by this Jew who's being wrongfully accused. Pilate, he begins to explain to them, I... I do not believe that this man is deserving of death. Pilate tells them in John chapter 18, I, I find no guilt in this man named Jesus. I find no guilt in him. I, uh, and, and so simply to uh, kind of appease the Jewish leaders and, and make an example out of Jesus, um, Pilate kind of comes up with this idea, hey, we're going we're gonna to beat Jesus to death, or right to the point of death, and, and then maybe that will appease the Jews. It'll, it'll shut up Jesus. We'll do it in public. And this will kind of force the other Jewish people to kind of stay calm and not try to create this just mob scene in trying to take us over. And yet, it didn't work. It didn't work. In the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 36, they begin to ask Jesus all these questions. And finally, um, Pilate asked them, are you, essentially, are you trying to take us over? Are you trying to take over us, the, that which is Rome? Are you coming against Caesar? And listen how Jesus responds. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, he does not want Jesus to be executed. He seems to think that the Jewish leaders are just jealous and envious of this rabbi named Jesus, that he's got more power, that he's got more popularity, that he can do all of these fantastic miracles that they cannot do, and yet they continue to pressure Pilate. In John chapter 19, verse 10 through 11, it says, so Pilate said to them, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And yet Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In John chapter 19, verse 15 through 16, in this same episode, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over 
to them to be crucified. See, in this exchange, Jesus is saying ultimate authority is in God's hand. It is not the Roman throne of which Pilate sits upon or Caesar sits upon, but even what Caesar is doing or what Pontius Pilate is going to do, and even these elders and chief priests, guess what? Who's really in control of them? Is God. We also see this idea of them pressuring again Pontius Pilate. Did you notice what they're doing here? Hey, hey Pontius Pilate, if, if, if you don't do this, you understand that you're going to cause major problems. You're, you're saying uh, things against Caesar. And you know, brother, Caesar's probably going to hear about this. And you're going to be in big trouble. Notice that the Jews here in John chapter 19 even commit blasphemy themselves as they declare what? We have no king but Caesar. The Bible tells us in the book of Exodus that we are to have no other gods before me. We're to have no other god but God. And yet God's people are standing in this courtroom setting, probably a few hundred folk there, and they're declaring, we don't have a king but the earthly king, Caesar. I believe with good intentions, Pilate remembers a custom between themselves and the Romans, excuse me, themselves and the Jewish people, that on Passover, they can pardon one of their criminals. And this is what the Bible goes into. He believed that the only, this will be the solution to the growing problem, that this is a great option. He even is told by his wife, right, she has this dream about Jesus in which she says that she suffers much. And, and even Pontius Pilate's wife comes to Pilate and he says, hey, you need to leave this man from Nazareth. You got to leave this man named Jesus. You got to leave this guy alone. I had dreams last night and suffered much at the hand of this man named Jesus. And so he's trying to backpedal out of this. He's got a really, he's caught in a, you know, a really tough place as the Jews are wanting to come against him, and yet if he doesn't do anything about it, they're going to go to the people in charge of him, and he's going to be forced then. So he remembers something. He remembers this custom of being able to pardon every Passover one of the Roman criminals that they have that would be Jewish. He thought he would give them an option. If we can take the most notorious criminal that we have and give them an option to either let that guy go or let Jesus go, surely they're going to let Jesus go. I mean, Jesus, what has he done? Man, he's, again, he's fed them, he's, he's healed them, he's raised a little girl from the dead, he, he raised a man from the dead, he turned water into wine. Surely this Jesus fella, this will be enough. Because this other guy is so bad. He, he is just a terrible, terrible, wretched man. If, and if we put them up in front of them and give them a choice, surely they're going to say, let Jesus go. But the plan does what? The plan backfires. Let's see what it says. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any prisoner whom they wanted. 
And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you, do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was about to begin, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourself. And all the people answered. And get this, this is, this is a curse they have called down upon themselves and their children and children's children. His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. So we're standing here in this scene. Bring in Barabbas. Bring bring in Jesus. Which, Which one of these two men do you want? Do you want this innocent, peasant, wandering preacher? Or do you want this criminal named Barabbas? And we can learn things from Mark chapter 15, Luke 23, John chapter 18. We can learn little snippets about who Barabbas was. Barabbas was violent. He was a man who had been in prison for taking place in an insurrection against Rome. Again, he was a a, a terrorist. He is seeking to be the enemy of Rome. He is wanting to either gain money or power or to overthrow the Roman government and hopes of putting the Jews back into position. He, we are told that he has committed robbery and that he is even a murderer. This is what we learn about Barabbas. This, I don't know, this Adolf Hitler, this Saddam Hussein, this, it's just, Wretched of a man who's committed treason, who's leading an insurrection. And where do we find him? He's, he's in chains. He's already been imprisoned. He, is, he has already been declared, what? Guilty. It's no question. Barabbas is the guilty one. Barabbas is the wretched one. Barabbas is the one who is seeking power. He is seeking popularity. He is seeking for his pocketbook to be filled. He, he is seeking patriotism, whatever it is. We, we see this man Barabbas and we know that he is guilty. He is imprisoned. He is enslaved. He is in the hands of the Romans. He is deserving of death. And then on this side you have Jesus who speaks to children and says, let the little children come unto me. You have this this picture of of Jesus who really and truly liberates women. 
with this Jesus who um, is completely throughout the Gospels and even into the New Testament, his influence is, is causing the, the, the scheme of racism to fall as Jesus presses into that. He, he goes to the hungry, into the lame, and he feeds them. He gives them water to drink. He goes to the, the blind and the lame, and he, and he causes them to, to get up and to throw their mats down and to begin to walk and to follow after this Jesus. What's interesting about this, brothers and sisters, is that in many of the original manuscripts, it gives us Barabbas' first name. Barabbas, the term there, means son of the father. And in the earliest manuscripts, when it gives us his name, guess what it is? Jesus. On this side, you have Jesus, the Son of the Father. On this side, you have Jesus, the Son of God. Pilate even states, which one do you want? Do you want this, this Barabbas? Do you want this Jesus? Do you want him to be put back into society? Do you want him to just go free? I mean, think of the most notorious serial killer, whatever it is, and just saying, do you want this Jesus, the son of the father, to be released back into the, to the community? Or do you want this Jesus, the one that is called the Christ, the anointed one, released back? into society. Which one? The Son of the Father. The Son of God. This is the tale of really two Jesuses. Which one do you want? And yet, what do we see? The governor said to them, which one of the two do you want me to release for you? And scream out, Barabbas! In a little freak out moment, Pilate is saying, man, what do I do with this Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify that Jesus. The innocent Jesus. Let the guilty go free. Let the innocent be put to death. This is the, the cry inside of this courtroom scene. And yet, what an amazing picture of the gospel. What an amazing picture of the gospel as Barabbas, this, this guilty man, this robber, this thief, this insurrectionist against the king, uh, this murderer, this, this man that he is instantly set free. And Jesus, the one who is the true son of God, the true Messiah, the true Christ, is now put into bondage and is sent toward crucifixion. Barabbas is not an innocent man wrongfully charged and placed on death row. He is deserving of the punishment. He is deserving of the sentencing. And yet Jesus is not deserving of any of these things. The one who deserves death is given life, and the one who gives life is put to death. 
Brothers and sisters, as we learn that, that, that Barabbas is, is a violent man, that he is uh, just, again, that he is a terrorist, that he is seeking to be uh, a thief, that he has been a thief, that he is a murderer, that he is seeking to seek to, to still kill and destroy this man named Barabbas. And as we learn this about him, and as we learn this about Jesus, one of the, the major things that we need to get from this passage of Scripture today is this, or let me be confessional, I am Barabbas. See, Barabbas' story is, is my story. Barabbas' story is, is your story. We stand not up here in a place of authority. We stand here not merely in the position of Jesus, but you and I, brothers and sisters, and lost people, friends, family, we stand here as Barabbas. We stand here wretched. We stand here with our thoughts upon evil continually. How wicked are our ways. We stand here dead in our sin. We stand here guilty before man and before God. We know. We know. See, brothers and sisters, we're not even as bad as, uh, excuse me, we're, we're far worse than we even think that we are. We're completely depraved. We're totally depraved. We are unable. We are incapable. We are in the stocks and chains and bondage that we have placed upon ourselves as we have sought to be the enemy of the ultimate king, God. We have placed ourselves in, in murderous positions, not only with our hands, but with our minds. We have sought to rob God of his authority and his character and his nature, and we have sought to rob a fellow man in taking of their stuff. I am Barabbas. And yet in this beautiful picture, what do we see taking place? In Barabbas' spot, Jesus now stands. The big million-dollar wording here in, in the study of, of the doctrine of salvation is called penal substitutionary atonement. I know that sounds like a lot of big words, and it is. But you know what it means. For the rest of our time today, I'm going to look at this idea of what, what does it mean to have penal substitution and yet, the next time that we gather in a couple of weeks when I preach again, we're going to really focus on the atonement piece. The term penal here is, is thinking, think penalty. Think judicial system. Think the legal system. That there must be a penalty for one's sin. For God to be who God is is. Brothers and sisters, this is why you got to get this. When you say things like generic phrases like God is good all the time, that whole thing, do you know what you're saying? For God to be good, he must be just. He must be holy. He must be righteous. He is, it is impossible for him to, to be in the presence of sin itself. He, is, he hates it. He doesn't sin, sin, excuse me, he doesn't sin, sin to hell. He sins you and me. He doesn't send the concept of sin to hell. He sends people there. 
in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his, in his fury against sin, in his hatred towards sin, for him to be God, he must punish the wicked. He declares it from the book of Genesis. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Paul reiterates this, for the wage of sin, the payment of sin must be death. And the next portion is this idea of substitution. What does substitute mean? It means in the, in the place of. In the place of. God's holiness and his goodness and his wrath must be uh, appeased. It, it, it must be taken care of. For you and I and anyone else to enter into the kingdom of God, then something must take our shame. Someone must take the penalty. They must take our wretchedness. It must be taken and completely removed from us. There will not be a single person in heaven who is not perfect according to God's eyes. And yet, how do we get there? How do we get to that place? A substitute. A substitute. Get this. This is where we, we see God's wrath and his, and his love, and, and they take each other's hands. We see the power of God. God is no less himself. Do not think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The difference is, is where is he pouring out his wrath. And in the New Testament, we learn quickly in the garden, as we did a few weeks ago, that he is pouring it out on the person and work of Jesus. And as Jesus is standing there next to Barabbas, and they're, they're crying out to let Barabbas go free, ultimately from the throne room of heaven, Jesus is saying, I got it. This is my deal. Let him go. He is orchestrating all of the pieces in order to fulfill his mission that you and I are still gathering 2,000 years from that time to worship this same Jesus. Listen to these passages. I think I've got them on the big screen Bible back here. It says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, there are going to be things that you have heard before. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I, I live by faith, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, he gives life for death. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Get this, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy. We see here that literally because of our sin, Jesus is accursed. He, he is cursed. The curse that you and I deserve. The, the eternal gnashing of teeth. The eternal flame yet being consumed by this flame and yet in, in complete darkness for all of eternity. Being separated from the love and compassion from God. When he removes his common grace and pours it out on people. And yet... If you're in Jesus this morning, you will never get this. You will never taste an ounce of that curse. Ever. 
you will never taste what you deserve. See, the difference between non-Christians and Christians, there's a lot. But one of the main things is, is we realize and are becoming more aware of how wretched we are. If you are lost and unknown without Jesus, it is because you have not come to, the, to just the depths of the realization of who you are in and of yourself compared to the holiness of God. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for the sake of... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as J.I. Packer would say, this is the best part of the best news that the world has ever heard let our deepest affections once again be stirred by these words he died in my place not unwillingly no one could take Jesus' life he lays down his life for the sake of the, of the sheep. Take a moment. This morning, we need to let these words sink into us. We will often sing over them. We will speak over them, not counting the cost of the beauty. I mean, I want you to close your eyes, and I promise we're not bringing out snakes or Kool-Aid or none of that stuff. Nobody's going to come dump oil on your head and shake it and tell you to say fa-la-la-la-la-la till you speak in tongues, all right? I promise. They will get tackled. Todd, you're on that, all right? We don't need to skip over this this morning. Just for solitude for a moment, close your eyes, bow your heads, and say this. He died in my place. He died. Take a moment, let that sink in. Jesus died in your place. If you were saved in this place, Jesus died in your place. He was, he was your substitute. Think of all the evil. Not just what we have done with our hands, but brothers and sisters, what we have at least done with our minds is deplorable. Imagine if I could strap a television screen to, to each one of us and whenever you went somewhere, it played your thoughts continuously for everyone else to see. He died in my place. Brothers and sisters, may we never become 
so thinking that we are so mature, that we are so engulfed in reading books and, and reading the scripture like a textbook and, and being into systematic theologies and reading all the, the latest authors and the speakers and, and church history. May we not become so engrossed in those things and yet so callous to childlike faith, so intellectual that we are not moved by these words, he died in my place. There is nothing deeper to teach you. It is at the very core. Many of us are simply going to church so we can learn some more information. You want to love Jesus more? Know the gospel. Believe the gospel. Trust the gospel. This is the, the greatest news. And yet we live in a culture where, did you know, people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus are coming against this very idea of substitutionary atonement. They want to make God out to, that, oh, that just makes Jesus this, or this God a, a cosmic child abuser. They want to say things like Jesus is just an example, that he's, he's just a way. No, brothers and sisters, without Jesus stepping into our place, without Barabbas being freed, without you and I being freed, and Jesus stepping up to the butcher block to be killed in our place to appease the wrath of God, we would be in that very death. We have got to see the beauty of this. We have got to understand this. This is at the core of what we believe as Mission Church is that I deserve to die and yet Jesus willfully took that place. See, every one of us should be able to say this, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my portion and his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. See, what God requires, you and I cannot achieve. And yet in silence, Jesus screams to eternity past and into eternity's future, I got this. Like, this is me. Like, I have got this. I'm going to take care of this. Imagine as the illustration that has been used in this idea for probably hundreds of years now. If you've ever seen the movie Deep Impact, there's this great scene where this, month, this dad and this daughter are standing on this beach and the meteor has just hit the ocean and a huge wave comes up and it's barreling toward them. I mean, it's just story after story after story after story of wave and it is going to come crashing down on them. The best way I can illustrate this is imagine that you and I are, are those people on that beach and the full wrath, his righteous wrath, his righteous anger that he must come against sin is a gigantic, eternal tidal wave of punishment. And it is barreling down on you and I. And right as that wave begins to crest over us, The ground below us opens up and it swallows all of the water to the point where not even a drop of mist lands on you and I. This is the picture 
our greatest issue is not understanding the gospel. We're wanting something more than the simple biblical truths is that God would look upon him and pardon you and me. Oh, what a mystery. Oh, what a beautiful mystery. Oh, what a glorious mystery that our Lord would not lose his character, but what he requires he would fulfill in the person and work of Jesus. And so that's why we can stand here, brothers and sisters. That's why you've got to get this this morning, because he has stood in your place. You can't be good enough. You can't work yourself. We, we get this idea after we realize that Jesus has saved us, that somehow we can keep ourselves that way. And yet Jesus has said, man, I got this. I've got this. I've paid the punishment. I've appeased God. In your seat today, as you came in, there was a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper is a drawing from 1910 that was in an early like school book for, or like Bible study book for kids. It's one of my all-time favorite photos or favorite drawings. I want you to take a moment and I want you to look at that picture. It's titled, Give Us Barabbas. Look at Barabbas. He's in white. He's clean. In this hand right here, you see shackles that have been undone. He's without spot. He's, he's without blemish. And yet, do you see Jesus? This is Jesus over here. He's got like a little halo around his head. He's been stripped. He's surrounded by what appears to be Roman soldiers. Being led to his crucifixion. Like Barabbas in this picture, because I don't know if Barabbas really ever repented in real life. What a glorious day that will be if you and I get to heaven. And there he stands. But like Barabbas in this picture, we stand free, we stand clean. We stand without spot or blemish. As Jesus heads toward our cross, as he heads toward our flogging, as he heads toward what should be us being stripped of our dignity, of our clothes, as he is paraded publicly through town, that is our parade. 
as he carries my wooden crossbeam, as he takes my nails, as he takes my ridiculed, as he borrows my tomb for himself to be laid in. We go free. Every day we stand on that platform, a guilty man, a guilty woman, deserving death row. Yet we are clean. We are righteous. We are free. We are without chains. And we get all of the inheritance of heaven. Jesus was devoted to his mission at all cost. What courage our Jesus has. What he would do that you and I would not do. He would die for his enemies and make them his friends. See, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. It's actually believed that that middle cross was for Barabbas. And he was probably the leader of those two men. Barabbas gets to live a life of freedom. And in his place, our Lord is killed. The one who is pardoned on Passover is you and I. Let that sink in today. Let that transform our week. He died for me. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to make a way for salvation. Jesus did not come to make salvation available to people. Jesus came to save and he did it. And the rest of history is just him unveiling to the world whom he has. Jesus did not come as a potential pathway. He did not come as a potential door for you to possibly walk through. He did not just come to, as, a, as an idea of throwing a life preserver into a sea of wretchedness. No, Jesus came to pluck dead men and dead women from their own death and give them life. We cannot lessen the cross. Jesus has accomplished what he has set out to do. They deserve death. My church deserves death. My sheep deserve death. They are declaring they are our very enemies. And yet, I got this. I'll take it, God. I'll take it. I'll take their punishment. I'll take their death. I'll take your wrath. I'll take separation because these are my people and I love them. He died for me. He died for you. Let's pray.